What is up, Bitcoiners? It's your boy CK, and I have an absolutely fantastic episode of the Bitcoin Magazine podcast for you. I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Eric Weiss, the CEO and founder of the BIG Fund, the Bitcoin Investment Group Fund. Eric is an OG in the Bitcoin space. He got into Bitcoin in 2014 as an institutional investor, and he really saw the long game in Bitcoin. But little do people know that Eric is a very good friend of Michael Saylor, and he is actually the man responsible to opening Michael Saylor's eyes to the potential of Bitcoin. And, you know, the rest is history there. Michael Saylor has made absolute history in 2020 and 2021, um, has really tried to advocate and legitimize Bitcoin. Uh, but really, you know, you can point that all back to Eric. I had a great time talking to Eric, talking about, um, you know, what Bitcoin is doing to the world, how people are viewing Bitcoin, how March uh, 2020, that big crash on, uh, I think it was like Black Thursday uh, in the traditional markets and the entire COVID crisis and, you know, the K-shape recovery that happened in the traditional markets afterwards, how that woke a lot of people up, including Sailor, to the weakness and uh, the inability to actually hold and store value in the traditional system. Um, and I think it's really important that things like that have pushed people towards Bitcoin and opened people up towards Bitcoin. I think, um, you know, Eric obviously used that opportunity to get Michael Saylor into Bitcoin. Um, speaking of Michael Saylor and Eric, uh, they're both going to be at Bitcoin 2021. Uh, Michael is a speaker. Eric, you know, he's going to be there. He's going to be a VIP in the whale area. And y'all, you can't miss this conference. This is going to be the biggest, the baddest Bitcoin conference in history. We've already sold out 90% of our tickets, almost 100% sold out for the whale passes, which is our VIP section. Uh, and we are 100% sold out for our after party. So y'all go to Bitcoin 2021's website, b.tc forward slash conference. Go check out all the amazing speakers. Go check out the tickets. They're pretty freaking pricey at this point. I apologize. But the reality is you waited to the last minute and, you know, what can we do? We can't sell out. We want to keep selling these tickets. So we just keep raising the prices. You can save 10% off when you use promo code Satoshi. That is Satoshi spelled Satoshi. And uh, if you pay in Bitcoin, you can also save an additional $200. We are giving a massive discount for people who pay in Bitcoin because we want your stats. We don't want your filthy fiat. So y'all, Bitcoin Magazine puts on the best Bitcoin event. The best Bitcoin event is happening June 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Miami 2021. And, you know, get your ticket, be there or be a no coiner. All right, let's get into this fantastic podcast with Eric Weiss. All right, Bitcoiners, I'm, I got a good podcast for you guys. I'm sitting across from Eric Weiss. Eric is the CEO of the big fund, the Bitcoin fund. Eric, you've been in the space since 2014, and you may have done the most impactful thing in history, which is you, you, you showed Michael <laughs> Saylor the way, and, uh, and now Michael Saylor is showing a lot of corporates the way of Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, I'm excited to talk to you about a whole bunch of things, but I want to start cool. off by just introducing my audience who may or may not know who you are about who you are and get them up to speed on, on you know, you, uh, you know, yourself and your history in the space. Sure. So I started off like a lot of folks in the space in traditional finance. I was a, a U.S. government bond trader, somewhat ironically, and then went to Columbia Business School. And after that, got into technology mostly internet venture capital kind of stuff. And uh, found my way to Bitcoin, bought my first Bitcoin in December of 2013 and uh, have kind of been in around the space since. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, so you've been in it since 2014. Like obviously you've kind of things seen things evolve. I was listening to your podcast with uh, Swan Signal and uh, something that you said really caught my ear was that at the time of 2014, when you discovered Bitcoin, you realized that it was probably better to buy and hold this thing rather than try to create a business necessarily around it right away. I'm kind of curious, like, like that is something that not a lot of people in 2014 were thinking about when they saw Bitcoin. Um, I'm kind of curious, like, what insight did you have that kind of made you see that kind of correct sure. investment thesis? So, you know, I went to a, a Bitcoin conference uh, in Miami. That was kind of my first exposure. 
And it was like, you know, people walking around with t-shirts, hey, we'll help you set up your wallet kind of thing. And I, you know, with my VC perspective, my thought was, I knew a lot about internet investing. That's what I'd been doing for a living. And the internet was really good for moving information and data around the world really quickly and not in a particularly secure way. I mean, email is kind of the obvious example of that, right? And then when I saw Bitcoin for the first time, like, I'm not sure I could put it into these words at the time, but what I knew was this is a way to use the internet to move value around the world safely for the first time. And I hadn't seen that before. So I knew that there was something there. And I thought, okay, thinking like a VC who invests in businesses, like, what can I do? What what business can I start here? This is going to be something, right? And I, you know, at the time, it was really simple businesses that you could have contemplated. It was a directory of companies that may have accepted Bitcoin or something like that, like really rudimentary kind of stuff. And I just, the more I thought about it, I thought all of those businesses have execution risk, right? Anytime you're going to go into any business of any kind, you could screw up the business, the industry could move in a direction and you lose. And I just kept thinking that if this Bitcoin stuff is going to work out and be a thing, the price of Bitcoin is going to appreciate. And probably the lowest risk thing to do is just buy Bitcoin. And I think what's particularly ironic about that thought at that time is it still holds true today. So, you know, no knock on Coinbase or anything, but, you know, buying coin, people say to me, are you buying Coinbase stock? Did you buy Coinbase stock? Or, you know, are you buying this miner or that miner? And the answer is no, like I can buy Bitcoin. Why would I, same thing still holds. Why would I take the execution risk? Why would I take the risk that that company screws up? The CEO does something stupid. They do a terrible acquisition. They get on the wrong side of the law, whatever it is, right? I don't need to take any of that like corporate execution risk. I can just own Bitcoin. And it's it's just amazing to me that as, as much as the industry has evolved, I think that's still the right answer. Uh, so the really interesting thing about that is it, it like doesn't seem profound, but I at the same time, I feel like it's like the most profound thing about Bitcoin ever is that like it is sound money and therefore you don't have to allocate yourself to business risk just to get by. And especially not before hyper Bitcoinization, but even maybe yeah. after. And I'm just kind of curious, like, have you like thought about that? Just because like, I think a lot of people who are maybe in a fiat mindset, they struggle with this idea of like, we aren't encouraging people to like plunge capital into businesses all the time because for them, that seems like yeah. the world's going to break. Like, you know, the world starts spinning, it stops spinning if we stop doing that. Yeah, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, right? I, I have lots of conversations with all different types of investors in the space. And it's it's a double-edged sword because for some people, simplicity means it can't be that good, right? I, I had a meeting with a guy recently who's plowing $75 million into shit coins. And he, he wants all kinds of shit coin bets. And his rationale for doing it is Bitcoin's too easy. Like he, he's 100% sure that Bitcoin is going to double in value in the next 12 months, but that's not exciting enough for him, right? And so the other part of that double-edged sword is nobody has to contribute anything to benefit from you know, what's gonna happen to Bitcoin. You can actually you know, just take the word of a friend or someone that you trust who says, you should really buy Bitcoin. And if you listen, it's gonna work out just as well for you as it did for them, right? So it's, it's, <laughs> it's a little bittersweet in that, you know, it feels like it should be more of a meritocracy. Maybe people should be adding more value to get the value. And really all you have to do is buy the stuff to participate. I mean, like zooming out, like, have you thought about like the macro geopolitical human sociological implications of that? I know like, hey, five minutes into the podcast, Eric, let me just like- <laughs> We're getting throw deep, you... huh? Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's get cosmic already, but like, I guess right. we're here. <laughs> right, so when you say like the the the, the sociological implications of that, in, in what sense, in the, in the Like what if everyone Bitcoin holds Bitcoin, yeah. right? And you said that yeah. like, hey, investing in businesses around Bitcoin, is just not even worth it. Like you just keep holding this thing and it, it was true in 2014, it's true today. Maybe it's true in yeah. 2025. Like how long does that still, like if that is remains a fact, like how yeah. long does that start to break things or make do make things like different or weird? 
I think that's a shorter term phenomenon. And, and the reason that's the case is we're in a situation now where there's a, where there's a paradigm shift, right? There's a change in what the best store of value is. And so we're seeing outsized returns in the short run um, just due to the capital flows coming into Bitcoin, supply demand dynamics, price goes up, right? So, you know, we're looking at like 600% or something for the year. I don't think that's a, that's not a sustainable trajectory, right? It's just not. And then those other businesses, uh, traditional, you know, equity opportunities, investment opportunities, business opportunities around the Bitcoin ecosystem are still awesome. That's not to say that, you know, there's some, there's some risk in executing those things, but there are companies in this space that are going to be massive success stories, right? Um, whether it's, you know, lightning and payment related stuff or, you know, Bitcoin bank type things um, like NIDIG and others, there, there are tremendous opportunities in and around this new digital asset class that Bitcoin is creating. So I still think, and, and by the way, to that, that investor that I referred to as kind of thesis, you know, 100% return is pretty awesome, or even, you know, Bitcoin probably has the potential to deliver, you know, many X 100% return, but it's still not the zero to a trillion kind of thing that you could get investing in like the next Uber, Facebook, that kind of thing, right? Um, and I think that's, those opportunities are going to exist because of Bitcoin and around Bitcoin. If you started a company that kind of hung off Bitcoin, you can see massive upside, many more multiples return than you could holding Bitcoin. That said, the return profile from just holding Bitcoin is still ridiculously compelling in my opinion. Yeah. So I guess as a guy with a, a venture technology background, looking at Bitcoin today and then, the, you know, where the Bitcoin space is going to go, maybe in the let's call it like two to five year range. Like, how do you go about thinking about like the opportunity cost of going away from just Bitcoin straight up? At the moment, I have no I have no desire to go away from Bitcoin straight up. I think that, um, you know, Bitcoin straight up can start to take smaller steps um, as far as diversification, whether it's taking advantage of some of the yield opportunities, borrow opportunities, you know, like the cash and carry kind of things that, you know, we spoke about once before, those kinds of things to kind of, you know, a Bitcoin plus kind of strategy, but really still based on just holding the asset. Um, I think those are the, the next stage of opportunity. Um, and those are still like maturing. I don't think they're there yet. I think that's the next, you know, two to three year cycle that you mentioned when we start to get really comfortable with whatever counterparty risk there may be there and the security and hypothecation of, of the Bitcoin. I think those things will start to get answered in a way that's a lot more comfortable. Gotcha. And I guess what would it take for you to start like you know, getting excited about opportunities to invest in like Bitcoin related businesses or businesses that are leveraging Bitcoin in some way, like um, what, what, I guess, where does Bitcoin going to have to be for you to start like, be like, okay, it's, it's interesting to start looking for Bitcoin unicorns now. Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't know that I, I know the answer, but I can answer it with a negative, right? Like, uh, I think that Bitcoin flipping gold is an extremely high probability, right? Like choose my words carefully, but it's an extremely high probability. I don't want to call it like a risk-free rate of return, which would be like 10x from where we are now, but it's it's a high probability 10x return taking no execution risk of any kind, right? In my world, a 10x return is a damn good return. I don't know that I need a better return than 10x return. Um, when we get to that level, when Bitcoin gets to half a million of Bitcoin, you know, obviously have to reevaluate that time, see what the landscape is. But the 10x return from there, Bitcoin going to 5 million, could be a little tougher putt. And so, you know, we'll see. You know, we're, we're going to bring in a lot of other uh, geopolitical forces at, at those kinds of thresholds. And, um, you know, we're starting to shake up the global monetary system pretty good at those kinds of levels. And we'll see what happens. It's, it's a little, there's just too imperfect in information to kind of think about how that uh, you know, unfolds at this point. Um, but I think at some point when I didn't think that there were pretty easy 10x returns to be had, then I'll start looking at other opportunities. 
unless something gotcha. super compelling came along, you know? Yep. So, you know, head on a swivel, but as long as, you know, Bitcoin's trajectory looks like it, it's going to continue to 10x, like why, why do anything else? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's really hard to strip out from these other opportunities is they all hinge on the success of Bitcoin. You know, like one of the things that Sailor's been really loud about um, is the Bitcoin miners who weren't hodling their Bitcoin. And it's kind of like, you've already got all your stakeholders. If you're a Bitcoin miner, you've already got all your shareholders and all your stakeholders have signed up to have, you know, Bitcoin exposure, so to speak, right? Um, your business lives or dies with the success of Bitcoin. So why wouldn't you hodl as much Bitcoin as you could? Why wouldn't you issue debt, do everything you can, get more Bitcoin and just win bigger? Because if you die, it's binary, you're dead. Right. Like if Bitcoin didn't work out, <laughs> whether you die really hard or die a little bit hard, doesn't matter. You might as well win bigger. And the truth of the matter is owning that Bitcoin can mitigate a lot of execution mistakes. Right. If you make business mistakes, you're, the Bitcoin you're hodling appreciates shit. You might just be able to bail yourself out and have another shot or, you know, your shareholders still win. So. I think I think still holding Bitcoin in in as direct a form as one can is still the best play today, which is pretty amazing considering the price appreciation we've seen. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think that a lot of those miners were selling because Michael Saylor didn't show them how to uh, speculative uh, attack the dollar like he like he's yeah. doing. So he's he's writing the playbook, and I personally think public miners are going to start doing some gnarly things to the U.S. dollar. Like that's that's the attack vector right there. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I, maybe Could we be. should even say those words, but I don't know. That's that's kind of what I what I see. I don't know. I actually think the success of Bitcoin is is probably going to be good for the U.S. dollar. I know that's not necessarily a popular view, but. Um, I, I do think that's going to be the case. I think that, you know, we will see Bitcoin as that asset layer kind of underpinning a currency layer. And I think, you know, the dollar will be the predominant currency globally. So it, it could be good for the dollar in a perverse way. Yeah. So, uh, interesting. I've heard a lot of different theses about how Bitcoin is good for the U S I haven't heard Bitcoin is good for the dollar before. Uh, but I guess central banks might peg to Bitcoin and then, you know, every fiat would be like a pseudo Bitcoin scaling layer, right? You got it. Exactly. You're you're in some foreign country, you know, somewhere in Africa, and you've got Bitcoin on your Android device. And when you need to tra transact, it's in a currency. And in theory, you could transact in any currency you want, right? If there's if it's going around central banks, and you could transact in digital dollar, um, and that would probably be, you know, your choice because it's the choice of the person receiving it, and then settle back into Bitcoin. So I think you just could see a lot more velocity, a lot more utilization of the dollar. That may not be awesome for the purchasing power of a dollar relative to what it is today, but it's good for the use of the dollar. We'll see how that shakes out. Um, I don't know yeah. if you read uh, Nick Batia's uh, Layered Money, but he has a thesis that is kind of uh, like has a very similar tune to that. So uh, it, it does kind of make sense. I want to, so we're looking forward. I want to go back, right? So you got into Bitcoin 2014. Um, what, like, what did you see as like Bitcoin's potential then? Because I remember in your Swan signal, you said like Bitcoin's kind of surprised you. And even maybe Michael Saylor jumping in, he, was able to like think even bigger of Bitcoin than you thought yeah. of before Sailor. So can you kind of like talk about just like maybe your progression of like how you saw Bitcoin? Sure. And it it's it's a progression in progress. Um, so initially, like I said, I mean, the, the, the really big thing for me, like I don't think I can overstate this enough, is that the, for the first time I saw Bitcoin as a way to transmit value over the internet. And what was particularly interesting about that to me was party A and party B did not have to know or trust each other for that to happen, right? There were, it, was, it was trustless and big, it was like, oh man, like you don't, have to, you don't have to verify that what I'm sending you is real. Like we know it's real and you're, you're willing to take it. And that was kind of mind boggling. And, and I just thought, okay, 
for the first time, we can transmit value anywhere in the world between parties that don't know each other. And that, like, I know now it's, we probably take it for granted to a large degree, but at the time, that really just blew my mind, right? That that didn't exist before this. So that was really, that was, that was the overarching impact from that conference for me and why I stuck with it and got involved. As time has gone on and I've gotten more into it, I started to view Bitcoin as an investment, I guess was my initial thought. Like, I'm going to put money in this because this is going to go up. And then I always had it in my head that, well, I'm going to sell my Bitcoin at this price or something. Or, you know, when it hits here, I'm going to take this many chips off the table or I'm going to, you know, that kind of mentality. And it wasn't until after Michael got in and I started to view things differently in large part due to, you know, kind of some of his perspectives and, and just how deep he went with it, um, I started to think, shit, I'm probably never selling my Bitcoin. And then I, I went from, you know, thinking, I've got a lot of my money in this stuff, you know, maybe I should be a little more diversified to waking up every day with this nagging feeling that I just don't have enough, you know, like that norm, that that Bitcoin mentality that we all have, right? Where it's like, oh shit, I don't have enough. Like you know, as Sailor says, you don't have to put all your money in Bitcoin, just the money you want to keep, you know, and, that, and that's, and that's really kind of how I think about it. I feel like the rest of my assets are at risk. Yeah, no, I feel that. And I remember last week, Jim Cramer sold half of his Bitcoin at the top. So I guess it was a good local trade, right? Uh, for a mortgage, yeah. felt like trade, trade, no, money, money. like no Bitcoiner would trade. care. Okay, I don't know. I don't trade ever. Trade. I, I have you, I've you never sold it. one Satoshi, Eric. So I mean, good, like, good for you. you know, that's impressive. That's impressive. Yeah. But uh, so I, I can't relate trade. to him. It was not a good trade. It was not a good trade because he bought it. it he had short-term cap gains, right? Like his his podcast with Pomp was pretty recently. So he got crushed in taxes for selling it. So he sold and took a short-term cap gain hit, which I'm pretty sure. It, Kramer's tax rate is pretty brutal. And then, so he paid taxes, paid off presumably really low yielding debt. My guess is the guy's got pretty good credit and was like, you know, paid off a mortgage against the house. So what could he have been paying? 3%. So it's it's downright, I'll, I'll try not to be too, I'm not, I'll try not to be seller like hyperbolic, but it's fucking stupid, right? Because well, I think like, I think it's stupid. So don't get me wrong. It's, stu- it's stupid because the dude paid off low single-digit yielding debt that he was getting to borrow in real terms, which Jim Cramer is smart enough to know. If you're, you know, not a financial guy, fine. I, I get it. Maybe maybe this stuff doesn't come second nature to you, but the currency is being devalued. You're paying a two to three percent interest rate on this you're actually in real terms being paid to borrow that money, right? You, you are paying back an amount of money 30 years from now that will be worth less, even net of the interest rate that you're paying than the money you borrowed today. To make matters worse, you sold an appreciating asset that's appreciating greater than the rate the money supply is getting inflated away to do it. It's just, it's an, it was it was really disappointing to see because so many retail people do listen to him. And what was particularly awful was, and I know that he's like a media guy and he, he says things for effect and, and likes and follows and ever. But, you know, the fact that he referred to it as like funny money or something or whatever, phony money or something, whatever he did, I thought was like a little disingenuous because he would be the first person to tell you not to put real money into anything you know, that wasn't real. So it was just a little disingenuous of him, I thought. You know, I'm not here to defend Kramer. You know, I thought <laughs> at least well, yeah, he, at least he sold 66 and not 55, but fair, I've never fair. sold a single Satoshi and I plan to uh, to never sell a Satoshi. So you're going to have to come and take it. Um, <laughs> all right. So I want to, okay, let, let's talk about, um, you know, kind of your conversations with Sailor and how you kind of sure. got him into Grok Bitcoin. Uh, a lot of it was around like this March timeframe where like things kind of went yep. bonkers. I remember March 13th, Friday, March 13th is the day that the U.S. shut down. And that's kind of eerie in of itself. Yep. But like, can you just talk about that timeframe? Not necessarily even like 
maybe sure. like the conversations of Sailor, but like, what did that, like the economy doing what it did, the K-shape recovery, all that kind of stuff. Like, what did it, like, did that wake people up? Do you think like, other than just yourselves, like how many people were having yeah. the kind of conversation that you and Michael were having? It's, a, it's an interesting question. So we were probably not unlike most people. Michael and I have been friends for, for more than 20 years and we kind of bond and talk a lot about technology investing and things like that. And um, obviously he wrote the mobile wave. He's got a really unique ability to, um, to foresee how technology is gonna proliferate in the future. If you go back and read the mobile wave now, it's like ridiculously spot on when at the time this was like, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty far-fetched kind of stuff about how everything was going to be dematerialized. So he, he's just got a gift for seeing those kind of things. But so, you know, we were kind of uh, spending a lot of time hanging out together during quarantine and looking at the stock market, talking about the government printing money and kind of, you know, lockdown, civil liberties being taken away from folks, et cetera, and kind of scratching our heads, like at how this was all unfolding in a, in a way that was kind of counterintuitive in a lot of ways, this K-shaped recovery that was starting to take place. Um, and, you know, we, I divested a lot of tech stocks at that time. Um, I just thought from, you know, as more and more people are getting laid off, the economy shutting down, businesses are literally shutting down, businesses that were generations of years old or, you know, just literally getting destroyed, closed, gone. You sold the bottom. Uh, Maybe, but I bought more Bitcoin, so I sold the bottom. I justified it because yeah. I bought more Bitcoin too. But yeah, yeah. I don't I mean, mean to throw you under the bus here. Yeah, I'm just, no. just commenting. Yeah. That that's. I mean, maybe I sold the bottom. That said, we got in pretty early in our in our tech investment, so they they were still you know good good runs for us. Um, and they've done a lot of studies about successful investors, and the only common trait that I think Harvard found between different asset classes of, of successful investors was they didn't pick the tops. So, you know, yes, we did. Yes, I didn't sell at the top. And yes, you know, maybe we picked like a, a little bit of a local bottom there in March and sold some tech stocks, you know, too low. But it was just a, a function of kind of frustration, wanting to step outside of things, recognizing that there was a paradigm shift of some kind that was happening. And that was a lot of what our discussions were about. And I've been talking about Bitcoin um, and digital assets to Mike for a number of years at that point. And every time I brought it up, it was uh, sometimes politely, sometimes not so politely brushed aside. And in light of what was happening in the world, um, you know, he was a lot more receptive to hearing about Bitcoin at that time. And when I, we were, we were having a conversation about, you know, he recalls me saying something like, anytime there's dramatic change like this, a paradigm shift like this, there's opportunity. We just have to find the opportunity. And it was kind of in that context with his frustration, what was going on with the capital he had in MicroStrategy, that note that we don't talk about his company, but, you know, based on what he said, you know, that kind of stuff that was kind of, you know, eating away at him, um, that he was receptive to hearing about Bitcoin. And over the course of a few days, he managed to pull out all the information that I had on me on Bitcoin, which... I guess in hindsight, wasn't that much compared to how much he knows now. And then uh, he said, well, how do I learn more about this now that I've exhausted what you're capable of telling me? And so I pointed him to folks on Twitter and you know different books and podcasts and stuff that he could delve into. And he did. And he got pretty deep. And then uh, you know, sometime in Q2, he, uh, he called me and, and, and told me that he bought a lot more Bitcoin than I thought he was going to buy. <laughs> so... Yeah, yeah, uh, ten thousand Bitcoin, right? Does yeah, that but, first but, you swing? Know, yeah, Bitcoin was like at ten thousand at the time, though. So, and he usually texts. You know, he doesn't call so much. So, phone rings. I pick it up, and he said, "Yeah, well, I just bought some Bitcoin." And I said, "Oh, good. You know, welcome to Bitcoin." Kind of casual conversation between buddies, and he's like, "Yeah, ten thousand. And I was like, "You bought ten thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin?" He's like, "No, I bought ten thousand Bitcoin." And I was like. It's like a hundred million dollars worth of Bitcoin. So I went from thinking, yeah, I got my buddy into Bitcoin to going, oh man, like, you know, anybody who's been in it as long as we have and, and has lived through what we've lived through, you know, there's some volatility. So, 
you know that there's a good chance that if your buddy puts $100 million into Bitcoin, he's going to experience some days where he's not that happy with you, you know? So I was like, you know, it was a little, it was a little scary. So, uh, but anyway, he, uh, he is, as you, as, as the world now knows, he is uh, someone of tremendous conviction who does their own research, who makes their own decisions, and uh, he, he's quite committed. So how, how like, at, by the end of that phone call, did you know that that wasn't going to be an issue? Or like, how long did it take for you to be like, okay, like, this guy is, is he's into this thing. He's not going to just get shaken out. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess my, my view was a little more selfish. Like, you know, you don't want to lose a friend over something like this. So I think, at, you know, I, I don't remember exactly where Bitcoin was, but, you know, his average price was somewhere in like the $10,000 range. I don't know. He said it publicly. I don't, I don't really know the numbers, but, um, and then his company's initial price, I think was like 11,111 or something. All um, ones. All ones, oh, as they should be, right? Um, and uh, and so like when Bitcoin, when he was kind of in the range of like up 100% on those collective investments, I think I said something to him like, you know, this this worked out okay, right? Like, you know, any anything anything from here is kind of, you know, you know, I'm out. We're we're good, right? I'm no longer <laughs> he, responsible. Yeah, I, I don't think I use those words because he is. I mean, you can see by the level of research and, and information that he does. Like, I wasn't responsible. You know, long before that, he did. He didn't buy a hundred million dollars because his buddy told him to. I just, you know, helped him take those first couple steps. For sure, awesome. I mean, yeah. like, uh, I'm sure that it's only strengthened your relationship. It's done the the probably the exact opposite of the kind of like the initial fears there. But I could totally like, yeah, you know, uh, I I haven't successfully gotten someone to go balls deep. Uh, yeah, you know, at least <laughs> uh, from what I can tell, but. Um, hopefully one day I'll have a story and I'll be like, you know, I'll have to like give them the talk. Like, all right, Hey, be careful here. Don't get shaken out. It's not my fault if you blow it. Um, his but, stock has had a lot of volatility. So he's lived through some bigs up and big ups and downs. And, um, you know, to his credit, even now, you know, like we, we still hang out quite a bit. Um, and you know, he, he's really impervious to the price moves, which, uh, as am I to, you know, almost completely, right? I think once once you have it in your head where this is going, you actually kind of like the dips. That's hard for, for people to understand, right? But you do, because it's you kind of like- You celebrate them. You do, because it's an opportunity for you and, and the people you care about to pick up a little bit more, you know? And, uh, you know, if you have conviction about what the end game looks like, then, then it really is an opportunity. So- one thing that I think you're kind of hinting at, and we've been talking about it, is like Bitcoin aligns incentives, right? Uh, one of my favorite yeah. podcasters, Ansel Linder, talks about this. But like Bitcoin, uh, it seems like every, like in a Bitcoin world, the incentives are aligned. And that comes from like, you know, even the holders are incentivized to like share Bitcoin. And, you know, I guess, you know, your claim to fame is the guy who orange-pilled Sailor. Like that yeah. is even a celebration <laughs> of like that aligned incentive. Like, I guess, have you kind of like thought about like, I guess the disalignment of incentives and how uh, stakeholders are kind of aligned a little bit differently than in maybe other areas? Yeah, we, it's, it's something we talk about and think about a lot. Um, It's amazing to me that there just doesn't have to be a loser in this whole equation. You know, it's not a zero sum game at all. And whether it, you know, because everybody knows Sailor's story, it's it's a good example, right? Obviously, it was good for Michael personally, right? It certainly didn't hurt me and, and my business. It was great for MicroStrategy shareholders. It was great for all the Bitcoin hodlers, right? To have this this new articulate intelligent advocate, um, you know. So where's the? It was great for um, Michael's uh, charity, Sailor, you know, Sailor uh, Academy, Sailor.org where you know he provides free education they they have bitcoin now as well right and it's helped fund them so it's like there's there's just no loser in this equation no one had to lose for all of these constituencies to win and the more i look at different areas of bitcoin the more that seems to be the case right like nobody has to lose for this to help people and i think jack dorsey does a really awesome job 
at focusing on the component that suggests that Bitcoin truly is good for the world, not the rich, not the K-shaped recovery world, but really the world, the, the banking the unbanked and providing people a way to save. This is These are really, really powerful things that are not just pie in the sky bullshit narratives. This is this is a way to make the world a better place, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I'm always kind of awestruck by the, you know, like the compounding good that Bitcoin is. But at the same time, the majority of the world either is like neutral, if not just baseline skeptical or aggressive towards Bitcoin. And they see it as like being this thing that, you know, first is negative before it could potentially sure. even be a positive. Like, I, where is this kind of like misconception? Like, how do we kind of uh, come to terms with the fact that, you know, we think that it's this amazing thing yeah. that aligns incentives and then, you know, the, the rest of the world just kind of hates it as a baseline? Yeah, there, there are varying degrees of the skepticism and hatred, right? If, first of all, I think everyone... Most people are resistant to change. There's a small subset of people that do really well with change and, and embrace it and, and look for it. But by and large, human beings are, you know, resistant to change. So there's that. That's why you have that technology adoption curve kind of thing, right? That, that we've all seen a million times. There's that. But then, but then there's a bigger piece of this as well, where you get the really vitriolic pushback. And that is, you know, it's hard to get someone to embrace something new when it threatens their entire existence and what their world is based on. So obviously the entire banking community, Wall Street, they're really resistant to this, right? Like Jamie Dimon's whole, uh, he'll fire anyone that he sees, you know, trading Bitcoin or whatever his exact words were, right? Like that fear that this is a technology and a settlement opportunity where we don't need that trusted third party in the middle. And, and, hundreds of thousands and millions of people have made a really good living being that trusted third party in the middle. And this threatens their entire existence. So I think for, for that constituency, it's very difficult for them to view this objectively. And they're inclined to just fud the shit out of it. Right. Um, hedge fund community as well, to a degree. So, but it's all the more powerful when they start to flip, right. Um, Morgan Stanley flip, Goldman flip, I think we're about to hear another big bank flip um, and they're going to offer Bitcoin to the trillions of dollars of capital that they have under management. And so why are they doing that? And there's only one reason they're doing it. Just one reason. Money is leaving their banks in amounts that it has never left before. And that's the lifeblood of their business. When billions of dollars start leaving your bank to go into Bitcoin-related investments, and they track this stuff, they will start to offer products to keep the money there. So I think you're pointing to like this insane amount of demand for Bitcoin, whether it's institutions or it seems retail as well. Like uh, yeah. there's this like kind of like crazy fervor around it, especially as the prices are going up right now. Um, you know, yeah. we see this in in the Canadian ETFs. The, the, I think the principal ETF is like one of the biggest ETFs in hi Canadian stock history, the biggest one, yeah. but even in an American uh, stock market history, it's it's huge. Um, can you kind of talk a little bit about like what you're seeing maybe from an institutional slash just general demand of, for Bitcoin right now? Yeah, the, the retail demand is a big thing. I, I think people underestimate just how big a piece this retail is, and it's big for a couple of reasons. It's big because in sheer dollars, it's a lot of money. And, you know, between like, say like Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, you're looking at like $12 trillion of AUM between those three banks. That's a lot of money. Um, and, and people say, I see this on Twitter a lot. People are like, these people could have bought Bitcoin before, you know, like, why didn't they just buy it through, you know, XYZ, Coinbase, this, that, whatever, right? The truth is these banking relationships sometimes go back decades or generations and they're very sticky relationships. And I'm in a place with, with my Bitcoin fund where we see these big institutions literally trying to stop that money from coming out. Like they tried to stop it. Like I have had investors who've had wires take multiple days for them to get their money out of these banks because they don't want to send the wires. They don't want that money leaving their firm. So 
that's a big piece of the puzzle. The other thing that really is a big factor there, and I think this doesn't get talked about much, is those buyers are not price sensitive. They don't care what the price per Bitcoin is. So they're, they say, I've got $10 million of Morgan Stanley, you know, put 10% of my money in Bitcoin. And they're going to put an allocation of a million dollars into Bitcoin. They're, they don't care. They're not saying, what's Bitcoin trading at today? It's an allocation, which is particularly good for Bitcoin as you want to go, you know, past certain like emotional thresholds and price in U.S. dollars. Yeah, I mean, and even like the dollar cost average daily DCA strategy that a lot of Bitcoiners push amongst like the true plebs and in, in, in retail, um, even that kind of has a similar like price insensitivity to it and no. just it doesn't matter it's cheap right now just just yeah. keep allocating um so i mean is it like how do you see like the the floor for bitcoin do you like try to assess like what is the floor line yeah. demand is that something that you can measure you think no i don't i don't i don't i don't spend any time thinking about that i think um maybe it's a little simplistic but i kind of feel like the end game is it's going to, you know, half a million bucks. It's going to flip gold. And I don't even think about the price at all. It's just, you know, at the end of the day, if you buy it today at where, wherever it is, like 54 or something, I can't see on the blob clock behind you. But, um, you know, if it's like, <laughs> if it's like, if it's like 54,000 or 64,000 or 74,000 and it's going to half a million, does it make a difference? Not really, you know, you have friends, I have friends, Sailor and I have a good friend. It was like Bitcoin was 10,500 or something over the summer and he was gonna buy in and he, he, he wanted to pay under 10,000, you know, that was his thing. Well, he didn't get in, he's still not in. You know, the mistake wasn't, you know, paying 10,500, the mistake was not getting in at all, so, you know, someone comes in today at 54,000 and tomorrow it's 45,000. Okay, I guess you could have gotten a little more Bitcoin, but at least you're in. Yeah. So, and I, I find that one of the biggest mistakes, right, is people look at the price. They're not really comparing Bitcoin to any markets that Bitcoin can surpass, like you've compared it to gold here. And they have a difficult time kind of like, you know, measuring Bitcoin up and be like, what, what could this thing be? They don't know what, uh, what the price could be. So they think 55,000. Yeah. Wow. That's th almost three X the, the previous all time high. I just got to wait for it to go lower. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a double-edged sword when you don't have fundamentals to point to, right? There's no, there's no cash flows. There's no multiples. People talk about stock to flow a lot. Um, so yeah, that, that becomes a double-edged sword. And that's why, you know, for me, I, I kind of bring it back. I, I continue to bring it back to gold for prospective investors because it provides for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think Bitcoin really is a digital gold um, and it's a helpful framework to compare, you know, where valuations could be. Um, and all this FUD and all the people who don't believe it, it's the only reason we're not there now, right? So I actually think that a slower progression up the US dollar price chart is healthy for Bitcoin. So I don't mind the haters. I actually think we need them and it's constructive and too, price appreciation in US dollars too quickly, I think uh, is potentially more negative than positive. All right, this is my last question for you, but yeah. you've been through several cycles now. Um, I, I did a podcast with Bitcoin Tino where we talked about the hardest trade and the potential yep. for their, you know, maybe because institutions are here now because Bitcoin is now a legitimate asset that maybe the historic kind of having driven uh, blow off top bear market cycles might not be a thing anymore. Do you have an opinion about like this kind of like greater topic of like the so-called super cycle and like potential of that? Do you think about that at all? I, I know you're not I, selling, so why does it matter? Yeah, but I'm just kind of curious I mean, what your opinion is. I had dinner with Tina last night. Um, so I, I, that's awesome. I, wish I, had, <laughs> I almost got a couple words in. Um, I, I wish I had an opinion on that, but I don't. I just, I just kind of, like you said, if you're not selling, you know, all I think is maybe I'll get more opportunities as I, as I come in, you know, to more fiat. 
uh, through other legacy stuff that I have going on, you know, where there'll be an opportunity to buy more. And that's great because when I come into that fiat, I'm going to have to buy it at whatever price freaking things trade in that. So if I get to buy it cheaper, great. I mean, you know, I get asked a lot about, you know, I go in clubhouse once in a while and people always want to ask, you know, someone asked the other day, like, you know, about timing the the market like sailor when, when he's buying Bitcoin. And I'm like, timing the market. Like he, he has stated many times and like all the, ev- all the evidence and data points to it. He literally buys Bitcoin every time he has the money. Like he being MicroStrategy, right? Like every time they come into capital, they buy Bitcoin and give a shit with the prices, right? So like, I don't know. I kind of have like the same perspective. It's like, if it dips and I'm and I'm averaging down, awesome, you know. And if it doesn't, and I've got to pay 120,000 for BTC, what else am I going to do with it? Put it in something that's going to, you know, do less well against Bitcoin. You know, if if I'm buying at 100,000, you know, and it's going to 500,000, I'm still making 5x return on whatever it is. I might not be getting that many Bitcoin for whatever amount of money I'm putting in, but still going up 5x so i mean i guess less even from a trading perspective but more just from like what the world is like what the world is going to react to like yeah let's just say a a bitcoin that only goes up i know that's a meme like only up laura but like what if that actually happens and it it, it actually plays kind of like that like you know the world is just waking up to bitcoin one person at a time and it's just a nonstop rate. Like, do you like think about that again? Not from like a trading perspective, but just yeah. maybe like in a popcorn perspective. Because we're sitting here, we're yeah. Bitcoin holders already. Yeah, I think you know, I look I look at the charts a lot. I like to not because I want to watch the price on such a frequent basis, but because like I, I feel like the market is like a living, breathing thing, and I want to be able to relate to the pulse of the market. And so if I look at like a minute chart on, you know, I use Binance just because I think the volume there is statistically significant and their charts are pretty good. So I use the Binance chart pretty often and you can put volume on there as well as, you know, some of the moving averages, et cetera. And so if I look at the chart by minute, right, um, you can see a lot of volatility in there um, and get kind of a feel for when big, you know, trades come in, pushing it up or down. And then if you start to Concern's not the right word, but if you start to think, oh, we're seeing a trend, you know, on like a minute chart, like just zoom out, you know, just zoom out. And, you know, if you zoom out to that daily chart and you start looking at it, you know, the, the big picture, all the trends are incredibly intact, you know, and it really does just go up and to the right, you know, and maybe someday that's not going to be the case, but that's where it's going. Yeah, if you zoom out enough, there are no dips even, right? It just goes straight right. up to the right. Exactly. So. It gives you, and then literally that's the definition of perspective, right? Like that is getting some perspective. You know, investments shouldn't be lived minute to minute. For traders, I don't knock traders. You know, I, I was a bond trader. I get it. There's there's a There's a value to that. But if you're an investor, you know, zoom out, look at the trends, buy and hold, Warren Buffett's style, you know, you should be holding something for a long time. Awesome. Well, I think that's a great yeah. place to to wrap this one up. Eric, uh, what's your last word for the Bitcoin Magazine audience? Yeah, I'm afraid that the last word is just not going to be that creative, just buy and hodl, man. It's like, you know, if there's a theme to what we talked about, it, it really is that simple. But I, I, I will add one thing to that theme, and that is education. And I feel like, you know, the one thing that enables investors to weather the volatility of Bitcoin, because there is volatility, is education. That is the superpower, right? If you understand it and you have conviction and you've done the research, then when it goes up 50%, you're not inclined to sell and take your profits because you don't think you got lucky, right? And by the same token, when it goes down and it dips, whatever double digit percent it dips, you're not panicking because you've done the research and you have that Warren Buffett mentality that it's now on sale. So um, educate yourself. Hope.com is a great source. Read the Bitcoin standard and do enough research that you can have conviction in your investment. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have to say every time I'm on Twitter and it's dumping and I just see all the Bitcoiners posting their buy picks, uh, yeah. uh, it, it really does uh, show you the the level of conviction that Bitcoiners have. Um, Eric, awesome. where can people find you? Uh, I, I know you have a fund. We didn't even talk about it, which shame on me, but we should definitely no, do that okay. next it's time. Fine. But it, yeah, It's just a Bitcoin fund for institutional investors. Uh, we custody our Bitcoin at Fidelity Digital Assets, charge really low fees, like 1%. Uh, per year with no other expenses attached to it. And the one cool, really unique thing that you would appreciate about our fund is it's one of the few funds where you can actually get Bitcoin. So you invest in US dollars, and if and when an investor chooses to leave, they can have US dollars back or they can have the equivalent amount of Bitcoin, which is uh, pretty cool. So you get some of the best of both worlds there. But uh, best place is just on Twitter, uh, Eric underscore B-I-G fund, and that's it. Let's go. The big fund. I love you love to hear it, Eric. Again, I really appreciate Good. your time. Uh, no, it's and, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I hear that you're going to be at the, the Bitcoin 2021 conference, too. So I hope to, to shake your hand there in person. For sure, man. Looking forward to meeting in person. Thanks for having me at it. Awesome. All right. Well, hey, for all the listeners, make sure to come to Bitcoin 2021 and uh, meet me and, and Eric and all the other fantastic people there. Make sure to give us those five star reviews, likes, shares, all the above. And uh, yeah, until then, uh, peace. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research. Thank you.